Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, through Hebrews 11, verse 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord as I read his word. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before, he, before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as, a, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead, as that... uh, Many, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the word of the Lord for this week and next week. You may be seated. Told the Sunday school class not to worry about the glasses. My eyes are just having a problem focusing this morning as, as easily as normal. It's just because I'm tired. So you guys can pray for that. And, uh, uh, before beginning, I want to thank Nick. Uh, Nick, where are you? Thank you for preaching last week. Uh, it's very providential that you were speaking on faith as uh, the rallying cry of the redeemed uh, because that is what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at faith as a means of grace. And so I feel that these will go in tandem together and work well and serve one another. I also want to thank the church body for letting uh, Grant and me go up to Crosby for the FIRE Conference, the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. It was a blessing and uh, very refreshing to my own soul. And more than that, it was just good to be with Grant, just to be away with him. It was very encouraging. So, so thank you all. Maybe as we begin, let's, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we have a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, showing us what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. God, I thank you for your word that tells us so plainly what your will is for us, Lord, what, what it is that you would have us do, what it is that you would have us be in order to be pleasing in your sight and to receive what you have promised. Lord, I thank you that it's not keeping a bunch of laws. It's not crossing the T's and dotting the I's of obedience to your commandments. Lord, it is about an empty hand of faith that grabs on to a rich and eternally gracious Savior. Lord, I, I thank you, God, for your Son. Thank you that you have hallowed your name in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I thank you that you have done by your grace what we never could do by works. We could never save ourselves. We could never be good enough to earn your pleasure or to be righteous in your sight, but you sent your Son to become like us or to be one of us and to unite himself to us and to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you receive from his hand the righteousness that will cover me and every other believer who trusts in him. God, thank you for his death on the cross that, that wipes away our sin and enables your free, rich mercy to flow upon us with, with boundless measure, Lord. I only pray that you would grant us the faith to see what is already ours in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to walk in the light of those realities. Father, we pray for Grant and Vicki Patton and 
and Sarah Blagan as, or Greg and Vicki Patton, Sarah Blagan as they, as Greg recovers from his surgery. Lord, I, I thank you that it seemed to be successful. I thank you that they are walking through this by faith, and I pray that you would bless them as they look to you. Lord, let them know, let them know your nearness. Let them know your pleasure upon them for the sake of Christ. And may that encourage them to keep marching forward through whatever may come their way in the future. Father, we thank you for Becky Waldemar as she continues adjusting just to life changes in circumstances. God, I thank you that she graciously receives as from your hand all of these changes that are coming upon her in, in her older age. Father, I pray that you would bless her family to continue serving her so well and that you would bless this church, Lord, to, to serve her if by no other way, to serve her by praying for her, by lifting her high and seeking to encourage her at every chance we have. Lord, we lift up Alice to you, Alice Oldfield and her husband, Ed. We pray for them as they walk through a difficult, difficult time, Lord, uh, a bitter providence that we know will in the end, if not here in glory, be sweet to them by your grace. God, I pray that you would sanctify these trials for their good. Let them walk by faith, Lord, renouncing everything in this world so that just they might be able to grab on to the age that is to come. Please be with them. Lord, and we lift up Helen to you as well. God, I'm so thankful for the fact that her hope in you is not wavering and that she is continuing to look to you. I pray you would continue to Strengthen her faith and let her walk through these days with the victory that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, bless us now as we turn to your word. May it be satisfying to our souls. May it shape our minds and, and equip us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel by which we've been called. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For most of my um, Christian life, the book of Hebrews has been my favorite book. I don't know if anyone else shares that delight in the book of Hebrews with me. What I love most about Hebrews is its exalted view of Jesus. Not just view, but its exalted presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know exactly when it was written, and we don't even know the exact circumstances for which it was written, but we know that from the very early days of the church, they recognized the Spirit of God speaking in this letter because of its view and presentation of Jesus Christ. Now, this section that we're going to look at today is just another reason to be caught up in the glory of this book. Because what the writer of Hebrews is doing at this point, he's already presented this high and lofty view of who Jesus is and what he's done for his people. Right? He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the one who is called God by the Father in Psalm 45. He's the one who is called Yahweh in Psalm 102 by the Father. He's the one whom the Father has said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
That is what God is doing right now. And after the writer of Hebrews has presented this exalted view of Jesus, he shifts now in chapter 10 to show us what this means for our day-to-day lives. What are we supposed to do in light of who Jesus is? What are we supposed to do in light of what he has done as our high priest, as the one who guarantees our hope of forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness in the presence of God? What do we do with this Jesus? Especially when the times get hard and the world begins to hate us and persecute us and trial comes upon us because of our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we do? This section in Hebrews is one, of the, is, it's, it's one of the clearest and richest and fullest explanations of what God expects us to do every day of our lives, no matter what happens and what comes upon us. This section tells us that, what God's, that God's intention for each one of us in all of our lives is simply this, that we would be continuing to endure and persevere in living a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that in just a little while in more detail. Let me explain something of what we're going to be doing this morning. Uh, As has become the norm, uh, it seems that what was a short series on the means of growing in grace is turning into like a tome. And I understand that that can be frustrating, but just let me explain what's happening today. What we're going to be doing is introducing faith as a means of grace today, and then next week we're going to be coming back to chapter 11 to look at uh, how faith is supposed to manifest and work itself out in our lives. How do we use faith as a means of grace? So today we're simply looking at faith as a means of grace. Next week we're going to look at how to use faith as a means of grace. And so there are three things today that we're going to focus on. If you want to write these down so you can take notes. Uh, first of all, we're going to, I'm going to offer some clarifications about what we're talking about when we're dealing with this topic of faith. I think in our day where there's so much confusion about what real faith is, we need to start with some clarifications about what we mean and what we don't mean. Secondly, we're going to ask whether or not faith actually is a means of grace. Is faith something that is to be used in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ or not? And then thirdly, we're going to look at two reasons why faith is so important for the Christian life as the writer of Hebrews presents it at the end of chapter 10. Okay, so clarifications, first of all. Secondly, is faith actually a means of grace? And then thirdly, two reasons why faith is important. So some clarifications about the kind of faith that we're talking about today. Two primary things I just want to make mention of. First of all, as we're discussing faith as a means of grace, we need to keep an important distinction in mind. We're talking about, when we're talking about faith, or when I mention faith, most people automatically think of what we would call justifying faith, right? Or uh, uh, saving faith. It's that initial response of, coming to Jesus, when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed and you by grace believe in that gospel and come to Jesus and grab onto him with nothing but faith, trusting in his promises, believing in his cross, believing in his resurrection, knowing he's a faithful savior. That's what most people think of whenever they think of the word faith. So when we say you got to have faith, what they think we mean is you got to go grab onto Jesus and be saved. 
Now, that's, that's right and that's true. That is part of what it means whenever we're talking about saving faith or uh, having faith or living by faith. It means that we are coming to Jesus and we have closed with Jesus by faith. But here in Hebrews, what we're, we're not talking about that kind of initial saving faith. What we're talking about in this section in Hebrews is the importance of persevering in faith. There's a difference between coming to Christ initially and then continuing to live a life in Christ following that time. So these two things are related. It's not as though they're separated. If you have justifying faith, you're going to have persevering faith. Because true saving faith is a faith that endures. It's a faith that continues holding fast to Christ. Not just once and for all, but every single day of your life until you meet Christ in glory. That's, that's true saving faith. It is a faith that perseveres. And what Hebrews is, is, is describing for us in this section is what it looks like when true saving faith interacts with the events and the trials and the circumstances that come upon us day by day. So the main point that we need to keep in mind as we're talking about faith in this passage is that the Holy Spirit, what He's doing is pressing upon us the nature of persevering faith. What does it mean to continue living a life of faith for the sake of Christ? So that's one clarification I want to offer. Now secondly, as we start to consider faith, we need to make some important statements about what faith is not. First of all, faith is not simply blind belief. What I mean by that, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not someone saying, you just got to believe. Well, what if I don't, what do I believe in? Where, where do I go? What do I do? How do I know this is true? Well, I don't know if I have all the answers to that, but man, you just got to believe. You just got to take that leap. You may not be able to see where you're going to land, but you just got to jump anyway. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about faith. Faith is not blind, a blind leap in the dark. You know, my favorite illustration of that comes from Indiana Jones, right? I brought this up before. It's uh, Last Crusade. He's at the end. He's going across that big, that big chasm, Right? And that from his perspective, there doesn't seem to be a way across. But he knows that the book tells him in order to get to the Holy Grail, he has to go across this chasm. So in order to do that, he has to take a step of faith. Now, he doesn't see anything to step on. He doesn't know if he takes that step. He's not just going to plummet right down to the bottom of that chasm. But he puts his hand, his hat over his heart, and he takes that step out and he just jumps out believing that something's going to be there or at least hoping that something's going to be there. And then lo and behold, guess what happens to be under his feet? A big plank, right? And then he can walk across. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about living by faith. We're not talking about living blindly, uh, just hoping that things are going to work out. We're not talking about an irrational belief whenever we're talking about faith. It's not believing something to be true contrary to all evidence or reason. I think it's important to point out that God never calls anyone to believe in Him or to believe in His truth without giving them sufficient reasons, or you might say evidence, to do so. 
For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we see that by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things which are visible. Now, I bring this one out because this is pretty much where most of the attack comes from, right? We're dealing with the source, the originator of creation. When we look around us, you know, the, the attack from the world comes across as, well, you guys just don't know where it all came from. None of us really know where it came from, but you just take the easy road and say, well, there must just be a God who made it all, right? There's, there's no evidence for that. You can't reason unto that, but you just want to take it by faith and just believe that God is there anyway. That's the kind of uh, irrational belief that I'm saying is not what constitutes faith. Our belief in God as the source and creator of all things is not a mere opinion, and it's not just speculation. As this verse says, faith in God as the creator of all things is faith in a reality that we have come to understand. It's not something irrational. It's not something that doesn't make any sense. It's not something for which we have no evidence. It is something that we have become convinced of by seeing what is true. I think it's just important to point out that God has not left us to blindly hope for something to be true. Rather, we understand this truth by faith. And as I've tried to make clear, that does not mean that there's no observable evidence pointing this fact out to us and encouraging us to believe in it. Now, on this example, uh, this, the world's created out of things which are uh, not being created out of things which are visible. The Lord has given us countless examples of evidence to prove that there is a God who is the source of everything. Do you know that? And I'm not talking about quirky examples. I'm talking about scientific fact. Uh, for example, the laws of biogenesis. You know the laws of biogenesis? There are two parts to it. One is that life can only come from something that is already living. And then secondly, everything that has life only reproduces according to its kind. Now that is a law of science. It is something that is observable. It's a fact. Uh, life has never sprung up from something that was not already living, right? This is the biggest uh, way to debunk evolution. Where did life come from? Life cannot spring up on its own. Well, God has given evidence of that reality for us in creation itself. We know that life doesn't come up on its own because we can never make that happen. We've never seen that happen. It has only been a product of someone or something that is already living. And then we also see that life that is already there only gives rise to life of its own kind. Human beings don't give birth to giraffes, right? Elephants don't give birth to mice. Everything reproduces according to its kind. The life that is in an elephant is not transferable to a tiger, right? We've never found anything like what they call a crossover species. There's nothing that is in between one species and another that is showing the development or the stages of evolution from one species turning into another species. It's never been found. And so, as an example, how do we know that God created the world out of things which are not visible? How do we know that there is a God who rules over all? Well, we know that, first of all, we can look around us and see the laws of biogenesis and know that life had to come from somewhere. There must be an originator of that life, and we know that it is not originated from anything in this creation. So it must be from God. Uh, the law of irreducible complexity. 
is another reason that we know there must be a God behind everything. The way that organisms and uh, the, the entire universe really is orchestrated is so complex and interconnected that nothing could ever have arisen on its own without the whole system being present at the same time. So as an example, my favorite example, you know a giraffe. You know, a giraffe in his heart, they got that long neck. When that giraffe bends his head down, there's a huge heart in that giraffe. And if that giraffe did not have specific mechanisms within the valves of his neck that kept that blood from just flowing right down to his head, when that giraffe bent, bends his head down, his head would literally explode from the pressure. Now we ask ourselves, well, which one came first if evolution is true? How did the giraffe know that it needed those mechanisms inside of its neck in order to slow the blood flow down and keep it alive? How many giraffes had to die before evolution figured that out? Well, it's a complex system. It's something that all had to be present at the same time together in order for it to work. Otherwise, the organism would not survive. It's the same way with our entire bodies. Everything is dependent on everything else, and that's what's known as irreducible complexity. You, can't, you can only go so far down before it's too complex in order to have arisen on its own. So God gives us evidence of that. One of my favorites is the, law of, the laws of physics and mathematics themselves. And my favorite example of this is Stephen Hawking. You know, Stephen Hawking spent his entire life trying to develop a theory of everything. Do you know what he was doing behind that? Do you know what gave rise to that pursuit of finding a theory for why there is anything in this universe? It was the laws of mathematics and physics. Because the laws of mathematics and physics dictate that life in this universe and all the matter in this universe could not have arisen on its own. Mathematically, it's impossible. And if you know anything about Stephen Hawking, that's why he came up with what he believed in or what others have come up with, what they called a multiverse. That mathematically, life and matter had to have come from somewhere outside of our universe. And so they theorize and they postulate some reason so that they don't have to acknowledge the reality of God. They come up with this idea, ah, okay, something must have bumped into our universe and introduced matter and introduced life. And that has now arisen in what we see today in our universe. That there is a multiverse, multiple universes out there floating around and they bump into each other and that's what gives rise to life and matter. Now, that, that is, I, is that really easier to believe in that than it is to believe in a God who made all things by his power and might? Uh, to me, that's illogical. Anyway, the Lord, I'll just bring these out as examples. The Lord does not call us to believe in him without giving us plenty of evidence for believing in him. There's plenty of reason to believe in the reality of God, even if it's not the kind of evidence or the kind of reasons that an unbelieving heart wants to receive. So just as examples, despite the common charge that comes against us from those who are looking for a reason not to believe in all the evidence, faith is not a feeling. Faith is not an emotion. Faith is not empty, baseless hope. It's not simply shutting off the brain and choosing to live in the bliss of ignorance. Just from these words in the passage I read, we know that faith is something that is described as knowing something to be true. It's described as having confidence in something that is true. It's described as understanding something that's true, as assurance of something that's true, and as conviction. Now, these are not words that describe blind unbelief, is my point. These are not words that describe an irrational, mindless hope and something that cannot be known or discerned. These words are describing faith as a rock-solid confidence in realities, that even though those realities are unseen, they are real nonetheless. 
And by faith, we have come to see that they are real. So those are just some qualifications concerning faith as we, as we begin. Now more to our topic. Here's my question. Is faith actually a means of grace? And what I'm asking in that, is faith something that is to be used in order to pursue growth in grace in the Lord? It's interesting to note, not, it's not very often that anyone lists faith as a means of grace. And I think maybe there are a couple reasons for that. One is because faith is actually what enables us to use all the other means of grace in a way that is beneficial to our souls. So if something is what's involved in using all the other means of grace, how can it in itself be a means of grace? Right. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us that the word of God only becomes a means of grace in our souls when it is met in our hearts with faith. Faith must be present in the heart whenever we hear the gospel, or at least it must awaken our hearts to the reality of the gospel by faith if it's going to be a benefit to us. Mark 16, 16, it says that only those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Baptism is a means of grace only to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Right? That's why we don't believe in infant baptism. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it is only those who use the table as a means of proclaiming their hope in the death of the Lord. It is only those who use the table like that who find the table to be a means of grace to their souls. Matthew 21, 22, it is only the prayer that is offered in faith that will be rewarded. And so in light of all these verses, some would say, well, technically, faith is not a means of grace because it is what we use in order to use the other means of grace. Well, my simple answer to that is, that's exactly my point. You cannot use any of the means of grace unless you are using them in faith. And this is so vital for you to understand in relation to your walk with the Lord today and tomorrow and the day after that. You have not done your duty with Christ. You have not had dealings with Him in the day simply because you got up in the morning and read a couple paragraphs in the Bible. You've not done your duty just because you've gotten down on your knees and prayed for a couple minutes for the Lord's blessing, but you weren't really engaged in that prayer, but you asked anyway. You have not done your duty today unto Christ in faith just by coming up to the table and taking these elements and eating them. There is no grace that's going to be communicated to your soul if you are not engaging in these activities with a lively faith. So when you come to the Word of God, what does that look like to come to the Word of God in faith? It looks like when you come and you read what God says in His Word, you're not only believing that what He says is true, but you are believing that what He says applies directly to you. That when you are reading the Word of God, you are hearing God's voice speaking to you and telling you what He demands you to do. And not only in, in, in his expectations, but also in his promises and in the hope of the gospel. That when you come and you read about the death of Jesus Christ for your sins, and you read about the Father's testimony of his worthiness and his resurrection, and you read about the Father placing him on the throne to be an intercessor for his people, you're not just reading those as bare facts. You are reading those as your hope of your relationship with God. 
You're owning them by faith. And if you are not coming to God's word, owning what he has said in faith, then it is not going to profit your soul. You must believe in what God has said. You must trust in what he has said and believe that it applies directly to you. Otherwise, it's not a benefit to read the scriptures. It actually will only lead to your condemnation. Prayer the same way. When you come before the Lord in prayer, you must come believing that that's exactly what God wants you to do and believing that He's going to reward you for seeking Him. Didn't you hear that in Hebrews 11.6? He who comes to God must what? You must believe. You must believe that God exists and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. You know, that's one of the main deterrents in my prayer life. That's one of the main things that keeps me from praying to God the way I ought to pray. Not believing that that is what God wants me to do and not believing that He's going to reward me for doing it. Uh, you understand that reality, right? That God is not just up on His throne as, as some despotic ruler expecting you to obey His will and offering nothing to you in return. That's not grace. That's not God's love. That's not what it means to walk with God in faith. Remember, His eyes roam to and fro throughout the whole earth so that He would show Himself mighty on behalf of those who are waiting for Him. When you bow your knee to the Lord in prayer, the Lord is ready and willing to pour out the riches of His grace upon you. But He only blesses those, he only blesses those with that grace who come to Him believing in His Word and believing that He is that ready to love them. You can apply that to partaking in the table. You can apply that to fasting in faith. You can apply that to all the other means of grace. If you're going to use the means of grace for the benefit of your soul, you've got to use them in faith, actually trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for you. So that's one reason why I think it's not often mentioned as a means of grace, because it's actually the means that causes all the other means of grace to be usable uh, for the benefit of our souls. But that's exactly the point. And if we're going to use those other means of grace well, then we have to we have to use faith while we're using the means of grace in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, maybe a second reason why people don't often acknowledge faith as a means of grace is because Scripture says that faith is given as a gift by God. God is the one who gives faith. Faith is not something that we just decide to have on our own or something that we just work up in ourselves. So if it's not something that we can control, how can it be a means of grace? How can it be something that we use to grow in Christ if it's not something that we can stir up in ourselves? Well, we, we do acknowledge the Bible says faith is something that God has given to us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 it says there that we are not only given as believers to the opportunity of suffering for Christ, but we are also given the privilege of believing in Christ. It was granted to us that we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says that salvation, the salvation that is given and the faith by which that salvation is received are both referred to as a gift of God. God is the one who gives salvation, and God is the one who gives faith that receives salvation in Christ. They are both a gift from the Lord. So if faith is a gift of grace, how can it also be a means of grace? 
Well, I think that this reasoning forgets a really important truth and a very simple one at that. It forgets that gifts are given by God with the intention that they would be used. In other words, when God gives us faith in His Son, He expects us to use that faith. That's why we so often see God granting blessings to His people in response to their exercise of faith. You ever been reading through the Gospels and wondered, Lord, what do you mean your faith has saved you? What does that mean? For example, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 13, when the Roman centurion who believed in Christ's power to heal came to Jesus asking for the Lord to heal his servant, he believed that Jesus was able to heal his servant, and in that faith, he came to Jesus seeking the healing. And Jesus turns back to him and not only praises his faith, but then says to him, go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. Now, doesn't that make Jesus' blessing of healing the servant dependent upon the man's faith? I don't know how else to understand that verse. Or Matthew chapter 9, verse 22, just as another example. Remember the woman who was in need of healing. She had a, a hemorrhage, a flow of blood for 12 years, and she had spent all of her life on the doctors trying to find an answer in this world to fix the problem. And she knew in her heart that Jesus was the answer and that he had the power to heal her. So much so that she said, all I need to do, I don't even need to talk to him. I don't need to touch his hand. I don't need to ask him the question. All I need to do is go grab the fringe of his garment, and that will be enough to heal me. And so she seeks after Jesus, and after she had touched his garment in faith, Jesus turned to her and said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Now, technically, it wasn't her faith that made her well, was it? What was it technically that made her well? It was the power of Jesus. That's what made her well. But the means by which that power was granted for her blessing was the means of faith. So Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Now, without falling into the heresies of the health, wealth, name it, claim it, little God's theology of heretics like Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, people like that, without falling into that error, there is no way to understand what Jesus is saying in these verses than to categorize faith as a means of grace that must be used by those who have it. A grace that must, or excuse me, a grace that when exercised actually receives blessing from God and the reward from his hand. Now, I don't know if you think like that. Do you often think, do you think of your relationship with God as you walk day to day, moment by moment with him? Do you think of it as requiring you to exercise faith in him moment by moment? We're going to talk, I don't know, maybe we're going to talk about this in a minute, but though faith is a gift from God and though faith is sustained by God in us, that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, though faith is a gift from God and it is sustained in us by God, it is still something that we are responsible to use. It's something that God expects us to learn how to walk with the legs of faith. Understand that. Now that's vital for you to, for you to take to heart 
for your life if you're going to learn how to walk well with Christ and to be honoring him in your day-to-day life. When you go to change that diaper of your kid, what do you need to be doing while you're changing that diaper? You need to be changing that diaper in faith. When you're, when you're cleaning out the gutters and you're about to fall off the ladder again, it's happened to me uh, yesterday. You've got to hire somebody. When you're, when you're on the ladder and you're cleaning out those gutters or you're getting on the roof and doing something, even that moment calls for you to be doing that in faith. When you're eating your food, when you are drinking something that the Lord has given you, you are called to be doing that with reference to God all the time. That's what it means to be walking by faith. It means that you are walking in the light of the reality of God and Christ every moment of your day. It's not just, my point here is that faith is not just a one-time event that you did once a long time ago, and now you're good to go. No, faith is a, is a living principle in the hearts of true believers that causes them moment by moment to live on a con- in a conscious dependence upon the Lord. Always living with reference to the Lord. And so that's what we're seeing when we come here to Hebrews 10 and 11. We are seeing that faith is not merely a decision that we make on our part. Faith is not merely a simple attitude that we adopt. Faith is a lifestyle. Faith is action. Faith is something that we are responsible to exercise. And even though faith is a gift, it is a tool. It is something that we must actively use so that when we walk in fellowship with God in the days of our lives, we actually obtain the blessing of God. That's the way the Lord has ordered our lives to work with Him. And uh, and by His grace, that's how we are to live. Now let me just run through something quickly here at the end. The third point is the importance of faith. The importance of faith for living the Christian life. A lot of this I've already hinted at or even discussed. But I want to give two two reasons uh, that the writer of Hebrews gives to us about why faith is important for living the Christian life. And we find them right at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. I just want you to follow with me. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were probably Jewish, who were enduring a long season of suffering. And they were suffering because of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Right? You see in verse 32 that from the very beginning, after they were enlightened, it says there, that's talking about them being born again. When the Spirit of God came upon them, showed them what was true, they were granted the gift of faith. After they were enlightened, they were immediately thrust into the realm of a great trial. What does it say there? They, they endured a great conflict of suffering. And so he's writing to suffering Christians. Verse 33, they were suffering by being made a public spectacle. They were being made fun of and mocked publicly by the communities in which they were living, partly through reproaches and tribulations, and then partly by becoming sharers with others who were being treated that way. And the explanation of that is in verse 34, where it says that they showed sympathy to the prisoners. You know what that means? That doesn't just mean that they were bringing food to to people who were murderers or anything like that. It means that they were identifying with other Christians who had been taken to prison for their faith. So when a believer in Jesus was arrested for not bowing the knee to Caesar, 
but staying true to their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, when that believer was arrested, prison back then was not like prison today, right? They don't get three square meals a day. They can't work on their master's or their doctorate. They can't work out all the time. They don't have everything paid for them. They literally had nothing. They were thrown into a cell. And if someone else didn't come to feed you and take care of you and give you what you needed, you were going to die. To be honest, I think that's the way prison should be. Maybe people wouldn't commit so many crimes. There I go ranting. I'm getting political. But... The point being, when these believers were being arrested, right? When these believers were being arrested, the other believers in the church loved them enough to go identify with them. What happens when a believer has been arrested and they have no food and then someone comes along who is sympathetic to that believer and gives them food? What does that mean about the person who brought the food to them? Well, that means that that person's probably a Christian too. And you know what that does? That starts the cycle of persecution over again, except now it's not on the person who's in prison. It's on the one who came to aid the one who's in prison. That's what was happening with these believers. Their brothers and their sisters were suffering. They were all being made a public spectacle, and some of them were being taken to prison. And in order to show their love for their believers, love that was greater than their own lives, they were willing to put their lives on the line just to provide the basic needs that their brothers and sisters needed. That's love. And so they showed sympathy to these prisoners. And in doing so, they began to be treated the same way. Their properties were seized from them. They were plundered. And it says here that these believers believed in Christ so much and loved Christ's people so much that they joyfully received this kind of persecution. I don't know if you and I are at that point where we're ready to do that. I don't know, are, are we ready to joyfully receive the plundering of our possessions in order to simply express love for one another when the time comes? Just, hey, here, here's the keys. Take all the stuff, I don't care, but I'm going to go love my brother and my sister. You do whatever you want to do to me, that's fine. But I'm going to go show the love of Christ to my brother or my sister. I, I don't think that, for the most part, Believers in our country are ready for something like that. But guys, we better get ready for something like that. I'm no prophet, but I can read writing on the wall. Right? I can see the signs and just say, hey, if things don't change, this is where we're going. Right? Well, our faith needs to be strong enough in Christ that we're ready to do that. Now, and that's what enabled these believers to live this way to joyfully accept the plundering of their possessions, to joyfully hand it all over and to, and to endure the public mockery and reproach that was being cast upon them? What gave them the strength to do that? Well, it was faith. It was because they knew, this verse says, it says they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew that what they had in Christ was far greater than anything that they were going to lose in this world. It was faith in the promises of God that encouraged them and enabled them to endure these trials that were coming upon them. It wasn't just gutting it up, right? It wasn't getting out the picket sign and saying, don't trample my rights, don't tread on me. It was believing that there was nothing in this world that could compare to anything that Jesus had already prepared for them. Guys, that's where the power to live the Christian life comes from. You know that, right? Do you know that? 
It's by being convinced that there is nothing in this life that's worth living for when you compare it to the world that's to come. You know, I say this all the time. The only power that the world has on you is the power you allow the world to have on you. When you let go of everything that the world has to offer you and you are no longer bound and trapped by the trappings of the world, when you can say freely, I don't love anything in the world and I don't want anything that you have to give me because I have something better, then the world has no control over you. No power. They can kill you. They can make your life miserable from a worldly perspective. But they can't do anything else. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't fear those who can kill the body, but after that can do nothing else. Set your fear upon the one who, after destroying the body, can also destroy body and soul in hell. In other words, Jesus' point is, live for him. Don't live for people here. These believers had that conviction in their hearts. They were living by faith. But... It had been a long season of suffering for them. Some were beginning to be tempted to turn away from Christ. Some were being tempted to to cast away their confidence in the Lord Jesus. And that's why this letter was written. It was written to warn these people who professed faith in Christ that if they turned away from Him, there was nothing else for them to turn to. That if they, if they rejected faith in Christ, if they turned away from their confidence in Christ, there was nothing else for them to run to. They were actually casting themselves away from the only thing that gave them uh, hope to live anyway. As it says here, verse 35, he, he urges these believers, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Confidence there is talking about their faith. Don't throw away your faith in Christ. Your faith in Christ has a great reward. And then verse 36 goes on to tell us that that reward will only be obtained in one way. Verse 36 says, I know that you're, the, the writer basically saying, I know that you're suffering a lot. I know that you're being tempted to turn away from Christ, but don't throw away your confidence. You only have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, just to make sure that we're all clear on what this verse says, we only receive, pay attention to this. Are you guys, I'm feeling feeling a little anxious. Are you with me? Yeah, it's my fault if I lose you. It's always the speaker's fault. If I lose you, I know that. I'm just kidding. But that's how I feel. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Verse 36 lays out some very important things related to faith that we need to understand. The writer to the Hebrews is telling them not to throw away their confidence, not to throw away their faith, because of what is depending upon their exercise of faith. Follow this with me. This verse says that God has made promises to us. He's made promises to believers. And it says that we will only receive what God has promised us if we endure. 
Endurance is necessary for receiving what God has promised. You must persevere to the end, or you must endure to the end if you're going to be saved, Jesus said in Matthew 10. Now, specifically, what this verse says is that we are enduring, we are to endure. If we would inherit the promises of God, we must endure in doing the will of God. Doing the will of God, in other words, is what leads to receiving the promises of God. Now, the lost and the carnal person will hear that and say, Oh, oh, okay. If I do, the, let me get this right. If I do the will of God, then I will receive blessings from God. Is that right? Say, so, well, yeah, that's, that's what this verse is saying. Okay, so it's a quid pro quo. It's, it's I'll do this and God will give me that, right? That's what faith is. He gets what he wants from me and I get what I want from him and we're all good. Everybody's happy. Is that how this works? Like the rich young ruler, I'll keep all the laws of God if I just obtain eternal life? Well, not so fast, the writer of Hebrews says. No, that's not what we mean when we talk about the need to do the will of God in order to receive what is promised. Yes, it is true that we must do the will of God in order to receive the promises of God, but how does Hebrews 10 define what doing the will of God is? That's what's important to keep in mind. He makes clear in verse 37 and 38 what that will of God is. He says, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. There's the will of God. That's the will of God that we must be doing if we would receive the promises of God. Do you see it? It's a living by faith. Follow through with me. This verse makes clear that, or excuse me, that this makes clear that verse 36, what 36 is talking about, when it calls us to do the will of God, it is talking about enduring and living a life of faith. No matter what we are talking about, therefore, there is nothing involved in doing God's will in your life that is outside of the realm of faith. He makes it more clear whenever he describes the one who lives by faith as God's righteous one. Notice that in verse 37, or excuse me, verse 38. God says, my righteous one will live by faith. Now notice it does not say, my righteous one will have faith. It says, my righteous one will be living by faith. You're going to be walking by faith. And the one who lives by faith, God says, that is my righteous one. Now, do you understand what that means? That means that the only way to be counted righteous in the sight of God is to be living a life that is enduring in the faith. You must be living a believing life if you would obtain the testimony from God that you are righteous. And so what am I getting at? I can see some of you asking that question. What am I getting at? Well, I'm, I'm simply trying to get to this, that this is God's will for you and me. That while we are waiting in this life and while we are enduring for the sake of Christ in this world, while we're seeking to live a faithful life in the Lord, we are called to endure in obeying God's will. 
And the substance of God's will, no matter what we are talking about, whether we're talking about obeying the Ten Commandments, whether we're talking about praying, reading the Scriptures, whether we're talking about memorizing and meditating on Scripture, whether we're talking about doing evangelism or encouraging one another in the body of Christ or being baptized or partaking in the Lord's table, it does not matter what we are talking about. Everything falls under the category of being an expression of faith to God if it's going to be acceptable. That is what God demands of us. And so when you boil everything down, all the commandments that God wants us to do, all that he commands us to do in Christ, and all that Christ expects his disciples to do, at the heart of all of those commandments, really the substance of them all is this one simple command, to live before God by faith. All day, every day, in the good times and in the bad times, moment by moment, God calls us to walk with Him by faith. And the only, if we will not do that, then we have for us the warning of verse 38. That if we will not live by faith, if we shrink back from living a life of faith, God says, my soul has no pleasure in Him. Now, that's the first important reality that I'm drawing out from this chapter. Why is it so important to live by faith as a Christian? Because that's the only way you're going to live a life that's pleasing to God. If you withdraw from faith, if you don't continue walking in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's word over you is, I have no pleasure in you. And uh, we're going to have to end there. I know we're out of time. But uh, as we come to the table... Let me explain a little bit of why that is the case. I invite the servers to come, uh, Grant and Eric and Eric. As they're coming, let me talk about why it is the case that faith and faith alone is the only way that we can live a life that's pleasing to God. It has everything to do with the nature of faith. See, the reason why faith is what enables us to live a life pleasing to God is because faith is not offering God anything from us. Faith is an empty hand that grabs onto what God has given us in His Son. So we're not earning God's favor whenever we are living by faith. Faith is not a work that somehow earns God's pleasure. Faith is a means of receiving the completed work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Now, the empty hand is my favorite expression of this. You know, when you go to grab onto something, to receive something, let's say I'm giving you a gift, and you go to grab onto that gift, you are not coming with a hand that is filled with something else. Right? You're not offering something else with that hand to me that you're going to use to take the gift from me. That hand has to be empty if you're going to receive it. That's what faith is before the Lord. It is simply reaching out with nothing to offer God except a heart that wants to receive all that God has offered us. And He's given it to us in His Son. Now that's what we have pictured here at the table. This is, this is what the significance of this table is. It's reminding us of everything that God has provided us in Jesus. And it's calling us to receive it anew as believers by faith here in this moment. 
that Jesus in His body, He bore our sins on the tree so that He might bring us to God. He dealt with all of our offenses so that He could usher us into the presence of God holy and without blemish in His sight. He shed His blood to guarantee the promises of forgiveness, the promise of cleansing, the promise of acceptance, the promise of God's love. Jesus has given His life so that these things would be ours. And when we come to this table, we are to be all over again receiving those blessings with, with a true and living faith. Praise the Lord for His mercies that are new every morning and His grace that never fails and uh, the sufficient strength we need to live a life of faith.